listening to episode 321 of the Ad Percussion Podcast. This is your host, Ksenia Kuljanovic speaking, and with me is my dear, dear buddy, Ben Charles. Hey, Ksenia, how are you? Hey, I am enjoying the first baby steps of the spring break. How are you? Like, we're finishing up spring break right now. Are you just starting? Yes, yes. Nice. Yeah, I hope you, you look rejuvenated. You look three years younger, if that's possible. <laughs> I was I was ready for well I was sort of ready for a break but we'd had so much time off for snow anyway that it also felt weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice to have a planned break, like none of that guilt tripping and all of that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, this episode uh, is going to be released on March twenty fourth, and I'll tell you what is about to happen in music history. The Ad Percussion Podcast is finally going to interview the first percussion group who won a Grammy for Best Chamber Music Performance. So that was the shortest, sweetest, best music history of this podcast. You're very welcome. So. Our guests today are truly historic figures, literally. And you know what they say, the more famous the guest, the shorter introduction they need. So I'll say no more. We have the Third Coast percussion today with us. David, Peter, Robert, and Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having Hello. us. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be oh, here. Of course. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, We'd love to know, I mean, we all know about you, but we'd love to hear your Genesis story. Sort of tell us a little bit about yourselves and how Third Coast um, came about. Sure. Maybe, maybe I can get started and, and the other guys can jump in. Um, Third Coast started um, a little over 17 years ago. We, um, all of the founding members and all the current members studied at Northwestern University. At the time, Mike Burt was teaching there. And um, like a lot of great percussion programs, Mike focused a lot on percussion ensemble music. Um, and we just fell in love with the music. And it is, for percussionists, it's such important music. And it, it was the same was the case back in 2005. Um, uh, but at that time, there were few percussion groups that were uh, trying to make a living doing it. So percussion was kind of just getting started. And of course, there were amazing groups that had been around for decades, like Cremada, Ramadenda Percussion, or Nexus. Um, but they all, um, there, it was a bunch of different scenarios. And, and in the United States, at least, there wasn't really full-time touring percussion groups. And so um, we just got really excited about the idea and, um, and tried to have a go at it. And everyone told us that it was a terrible idea. <laughs> Um, I think largely because no one else uh, was really doing it or those few that were trying. It was, it's a really a struggle. And it is. It's a, it was, it was, you know, um, a long road to get from starting the group to where it became what is today a full-time job for the four of us, plus our three staff members. Um, but we started small. We just put on shows uh, around Chicago at venues we could get for free. Um focused on the music, which is what we knew how to do, and then slowly realized that we needed to learn how to run the business of the group too, and sort of learn that in fits and starts, and um, and uh, just gradually, yeah, uh, uh, built the thing up. I had a question. We had uh, Jason Truding from So On a couple of weeks ago, and one thing we asked them was, that, you know, you had the established groups like 
Nexus, Amadinda, Percussion Group, Cincinnati. And it was like, what, what did you think you had to offer that would be different or unique from those groups before? And it was funny hearing Jason talk about like, well, we knew we weren't going to improvise, uh, which so breaks that rule of the time. And he said, you know, like there's no point in us doing ragtime xylophone because Nexus with Bob Becker kind of had that market cornered. So what, what was different or what, what did you hope to fill in the market? What hole did you hope to fill in the market with third coast? The other guys can, uh, can, you know, agree or disagree, but I feel like when we first started, I don't know that we were necessarily answering that question. I think right at the beginning, it was like, we love doing this. We feel like there should be a lot more groups out there doing this. Let's figure out what we can do, you know? And I think over time we sort of, uh, tried to like answer that question more and more based on like what the music was that we were really excited about playing. And I think for us, it was about being, uh, really, uh, like kind of a repertoire ensemble with a really broad range of projects, different kinds of aesthetics. And I think from the beginning, like we had music in a repertoire that was composed by members of the group and we had pieces that were like longstanding, uh, sort of classics percussion ensemble rep that we just really love playing. And then we were commissioning composers from pretty early on and, and, and figuring out how to do that effectively, but also like really interested in a broad range of aesthetics that would, would factor into that. Um, and I think sort of thinking of it, approaching it really from like kind of a chamber music mentality, um, I think was, was sort of how we carved out our identity as we went along. And then I think specific projects along the way really, uh, I think, helped us to zero in on that sort of defining that identity further. It was also, um, uh, there was sort of an element of, uh, well, we were experimenting with a lot of different uh, repertoire, but then a lot of, in the first couple of years, some of like the repertoire choices were actually dictated by just sort of practical and logistical things. Uh, I mean, it, you know, we, uh, the, the four of us each had like a five octave marimba, but nobody owned a tam-tam, you know, that, that type of thing, you know? So it, it um, yeah, it, it sort of like steered choices. And then also like in some of our first concerts where, you know, we wanted to play like a really amazing piece by Christopher Dean that calls for four marimbas and it's awesome and it's a beautiful piece. But um, we realized after the first gig that that was not a sustainable thing to be moving four five octave marimbas to every single gig that we did, you know? So, um, those sort of logistical challenges of just being a percussionist um, ended up sort of informing uh, some of the rep our repertoire choices. And then one of the other things, and, and I'll let the guys chime in too, if uh, kind of like Rob, if they agree or disagree, but there was, in the very beginning, there was also a push to try to make a show uh, uh, out of the concert. So, and what I mean by that was, uh, even though we were having a lot of different, like very eclectic repertoire choices from a variety of different sort of aesthetics and genres and whatnot, we really wanted to create, you know, an hour length show that people could come to in the same way they would come to another concert or another theater production. So, so there would be less of like, let's play a piece and then spend 10 minutes, you know, tearing down and then setting up another piece, but, but thinking more like, no, let, let, let's, let's, let's think of it as like an actual experience, um, uh, a performative experience. And, you know, we were, I mean, this was really, really early on, but, you know, we were even experimenting with like, you know, staging things and lighting and just, just trying to make it all flow very seamlessly. Um, and that was, that was definitely a push of ours from the very beginning. And again, because of that, it, it ended up sort of informing some repertoire choices where we're like, oh, well, what, um, you know, what, 
pieces share different instruments or like um you know like 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 how does this piece move from one piece to the other just in terms of like the character and the emotion um yeah. uh like degree recitals are that like my favorite things it's just a bunch of pieces that don't don't go together so it's nice to hear some sort of artistic thought there sorry sean go ahead oh sorry um I was just going to add on to what Peter was saying in that way. I think we were looking at groups beyond just percussion ensembles to take our cue from, especially um, folks who were just a, like about a decade or, or more in their, in their career uh, beyond us, but uh, groups like a Blackbird here in Chicago and, and um, you know, Alarm Will Sound or the Kronos Quartet who had been doing it for decades in the chamber music field. Um, and that drive to create a show or an album, uh, I think early on, before I was even in the group, uh, started attracting me to, to these guys. You know, they're like, oh, cool, they're doing a show that's all metal. Interesting. And, and there's no stage setup changes in the middle um, like there would normally be in Ben, as you said, at Degree Recital. There was also, um, like, like some of the venues that we're playing at in the very beginning, like, we played at this like black box theater called the Neo Futurarium. We were playing at some like kind of like indie venues, like uh, club venues in Chicago, like the Empty Bottle and the Hideout, where like these were really small stages too. This was like these were stages that were built for like four piece rock bands, you know. And then we show up with like a bunch of marimbas and vibraphones and drums and all this other stuff. And like, uh, you know, it was a uh, just like trying to fit all the stuff onto the stage <laughs> and negotiating with, uh, cause we were sharing the bill with other bands too. And just negotiating with them, like the fact that we were just going to like take over, you know, um, again, like some of that even affected some of our repertoire choices. Cause we, yeah, we, we realized early on that um, the venues, the type of venues that we wanted to play and the type of audiences that we wanted to reach, we needed to sort of adapt, um, adapt to that. And, you know, we, we were all students, who are used to percussion ensembles, you know, being in a nice big, huge concert hall with like access to every single instrument. And um, anyway, it was, it was a, it was a sort of a different, it was a different experience that we were trying to create. Uh, Peter, backing up a bit, I had one thing today I wanted to ask about and you already touched on it. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually right now, uh, there's a memorial concert for Christopher Dean happening on April 2nd uh, in Denton. And I'm very honored to be selected to perform Vespertine Formations, which I'm assuming is the quartet you're talking about. Uh, and we've been using these uh, Third Coast recording as, as a reference recording. There's, there's two really good recordings. There's the UNT one and the Third Coast one. Uh, and then there's a really good video by Vanderbilt. Um, but could you tell us about your experience with that piece? And uh, for anyone unfamiliar, the end of the piece uses these homemade mallets with um, uh, like a brush attached to a marimba mallet, and it sounds like bird wings flapping. It's it's really really cool. Yeah, Chris, I, Chris I saw I saw Sean pointing to the uh, the album above me. No. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I feel like I've been talking a lot, so I, I I'm gonna pitch it to the other guys to to talk about this piece. But I did just want to say, since we're talking about Christine, that uh, you know, uh, that was an amazing amazing person, an amazing musician, an amazing mentor, and uh. I, I know so many have so many friends, you know, that were students of his and whatnot. And I remember uh, when he passed, just seeing this like outpouring of emotion. And uh, and I just wanted to say that, like, uh, you know, for all respect, you know, to him, that like uh, that guy did something right uh, with his life when you saw like that amount of outpouring, you know, um, 
of emotion after he passed. So anyway, I'll let uh, some, some of the other guys talk about Vespertine now. Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, um, echo everything uh, Pete said. Um, and I think, you know, one of Chris's amazing legacies is the music that he wrote in Vespertine formations. Like every, every piece that Chris wrote, and he didn't write maybe like a ton of, of pieces, right? Um, there's, there's other composers who write like dozens of pieces every year. And, uh, Chris wrote a lot of great music, but it felt like he really, like each piece was really, really special and created a special sound world. And Vespertine Formations is totally like that. So, uh, our experience of playing that was, you know, you mentioned those mallets at the end, those sort of custom mallets that it's been a long time. So I don't remember, I think in the score, it sort of tells you how to construct the mallet or different. Yeah. There's a little picture. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, well, you know, that in the context of what Pete was saying earlier about how we were just like learning how to be a professional group, I remember um, the unique uh, uh, opportunity and frustrations of that piece because we were just, you know, we were like, well, where's the professor to tell us how to make these mallets, you know, or where's the authority to say this is how it should be done. Now it's just four people. And, and why aren't the page turns done for me? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh man. Like, yeah, I think we like had like epic, like uh sailboat sized, you know, like music for that piece or something like that. Um, yeah. It's funny. There were like challenges with that piece, but uh, it's such a great example of a piece that is, is totally worth it. You know, um, it, the payoff is incredible. I will say that we ended up not being able to tour it as much as we wanted to because it is very much written for four marimbas. And that just ended up not being something that we were going to be able to tour. Um, but I kind of wish we had <laughs> played that piece a lot more. I'm so glad that we had a chance to record it. Yeah, you know, you should start using this leverage that you have and just take your Grammy and go lobby for every concert hall to have four marimbas on their own because if everybody can afford a bloody huge piano, they should be able, it's it's easy. It's it's even cheaper if you buy four marimbas. So I, I won't agree. names. People could probably piece together, but I have a very dear friend that studied with a famous marimba player and she was like, oh yeah, when, when so-and-so plays, the marimba just shows up. It must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so looking at your careers, you all do so many things and have done so many things in your lives. Um, how did this idea of like, okay, we're going to marry into this quartet and we're going to abandon all these other opportunities happen? Cause this is, I mean, I remember hearing that story for the first time. And in fact, it was, um, I was at Illinois state and I had a friend who went to study and was so excited to study with Sean and then Sean made the decision of Tom. Killing oh God, Tom. It was Tom. Oh <laughs> it was man, Tom. that was the worst. I'm I so was sorry. Like crying, telling these guys. I had like met with Tom at PASIC. I was so excited, and there was a ton of other students there. Oh man, yeah. sorry, yeah, that was sorry. A very hard on. decision. Yeah. There was, I, I, I joined the group basically at the cusp when it was shifting from part of a large array of different things that every member of the group was doing to uh, it being a full-time commitment that the only thing uh, career-wise that each member was doing was Third Coast. And so uh, I'll let those guys kind of explain the process, but it's, it's a fun, like, interesting phone call that I got. <laughs> it was like, hey, can you come sub for this concert? Uh, great. Can you come play the rest of our season? 
hey, can you quit your job? <laughs> and I was like, uh, is, is, is Peter doing that too? Is, is Rob doing that too? Is David doing it? And yeah, we, the, um, I'll let the other guys kind of explain the steps, but yeah, that, the only thing that would have gotten me to leave my uh, college teaching position at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point was to, was to join Dirt Coast Percussion. That was it. So in that way, it was a, in that way, it was an easy decision, but the process really sucked. <laughs> Happily ever after it turned out to be. Yeah. But yes, please, please chime in. And you can also share your experiences of what was it that you envisioned your life was going to be like before, because you did get into the NBA. A lot of you did, you know, so successful at teaching and composing and playing with orchestras. Like, and then you're like, screw all that. I'm staying here. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was definitely a gradual process. I mean, there was a moment when we had to like make that decision, um, but you know, we started the group uh, basically in two thousand five, and the year when we all went full time was twenty thirteen. So it was about an eight year process. And I would say, like at the beginning, we all, like from the very beginning, I think we talked about the idea of like, oh man, this would be really great for this to be our full time jobs, and we had no idea what that would look like, how that could happen, like what it would entail, really. Um, but, you know, gradually over the course of, you know, maybe the first four years of the group, we figured out like how to basically just do anything. <laughs> and then we also started like going from uh, essentially paying money to be in Third Coast Percussion um, to getting to the point where we were all getting paid a little bit from Third Coast Percussion. And then maybe the next four years, roughly, we're going from like Third Coast being like some amount of money that we each get paid to like a larger and larger portion of our uh, livelihoods. And then as we were like coming up on the 2013, 14 season and like had gotten to the point where we were planning out budgets for the next year and making <laughs> projections about what was going to happen in the future. Um, we were like, okay, like this could be the year where we like would make enough, uh, to like, for it to be a full-time job. And like, also simultaneously the like season or two leading up to that point touring and the other things we were doing were were picking up more and more it was getting busier and busier and it was getting harder and harder for us to all like say yes to all the things that third coast was had the opportunities to do which was awesome and also like keep doing our other jobs at the level that we we wanted to and needed to and so it was kind of this this point of like okay well we can either maybe dial back third coast so that we can do it sustainably while keeping our other jobs or we're going to have to like take the plunge and all all make that move and i think um you know each of our situations were slightly different at that point but for all of us it was like this is you know making a making a living making a career out of all of these things in any of the ways of teaching orchestra playing freelancing and composing all these things is always like a huge and difficult thing i think to get to um but this felt like kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity and like nothing was guaranteed, but like if, if we don't do this now, like will we ever have the chance to play in a full-time percussion quartet ever again? Um, and so, and it was something we were just really passionate and excited about doing. And uh, a lot of things were converging at that point. We just uh, were about to start a ensemble residence position at the university of Notre Dame, which was sort of one piece of the puzzle that helped make this possible. Touring was picking up. We had some really exciting commissions and other projects that were, moving forward. Um, and so, but there was a lot of like communication leading up to that point, I think is, is sort of a, a key 
a key aspect of it too. So, yeah, the communication I think was a uh, was an important part of it. I mean, right before we all kind of quit everything else and you know did this full time, um, you know, not all of us were even living in Chicago. I mean, obviously, Sean, you know, was was teaching in Wisconsin. I was living in Virginia. I was teaching at Virginia Commonwealth University. You know, Dave, I think, had just recently moved back to Chicago uh, from, from New York, but, you know, he had like a, a very solid career as a performer and teacher in New York city and was, you know, teaching at, at uh, Peabody conservatory as well. You know, so, um, so there was this, there was a sort of like time where we weren't actually even living in the same city, you know, together, which I guess is not super uncommon, um, for chamber music groups, but, uh, but, you know, always keeping that dialogue open. I, I remember, so, so, some dial it back a little bit. I remember like one of like the really important moments for me in like sort of understanding everybody's level of commitment um, uh, and goals and desires for this, uh, for our group. But I was walking around somewhere in Richmond and I get a phone call from Rob. And this is maybe like a year or so before we became full-time. He's like, hey, I just wanted to talk to you about blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm, I'm trying to debate whether I'm not gonna, I'm gonna take this orchestral audition. Um, and I can't remember what the orchestra was, but it was, it was the type of thing where he's like, well, one, you know, it's like, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to get the job, but, but, but like, I, I think I'm like, you know, a good contender for this like position, but like, more importantly, he's like, I don't want to, I don't want to take an audition to take this other job. Um, and be, because I, I would love to have a third coast be like the main job. He's like, but I want to talk to you and make sure that you're cool. You're also cool with the idea of third coast being our main job. Because if you're not, then I'm going to go and start taking, you know, I'm going to take this audition, you know, again. And it, it was just one of those sort of like, not lines in the sand, but it was just one of those moments where it was just like, all right, are we all in? Are we all out? You know? Um, and so that was like really important. And like there were a variety of conversations after that, you know, about it. But it was definitely, um, as Rob was saying, you know, there was at a certain point, it, it got to the point where um, I couldn't do both jobs, you know, I, I was, I was, I was a full-time professor living in Richmond, Virginia, and I would get on the plane on Wednesday, get back on Sunday, try to cram all of my teaching onto Monday and Tuesday, then get on the plane on Wednesday and then fly back. You know, uh, it's like that, that's like unsustainable. Um, and I didn't, and I think it's probably the same with everybody else. It's like, I uh, didn't want to dial back third coast. And I also didn't want to do a poor job. Yeah, you know, as, as as a teacher and a mentor of other young, you know, percussionists. So. Yeah, well, it's amazing that this it was. It sounds like it was long distance dating for a while, and then it had to turn into like, okay, this is a four way marriage. Is everybody in? And we all got to move. So that's that's pretty incredible. It's actually more than a the four way marriage because uh, you know, for our partners and families, and I mean, it was it's um, you know using, I'll just use you as an example, Pete, but, you know, Pete was married already, um, uh, to his wife, Jana. And so it wasn't just, Hey, uh, I'm just going to qu quit my tenure track teaching job at an amazing university to go play in a percussion quartet. That is by the way, not a tenured position. <laughs> uh, There's no tenure in percussion quartets. That's right. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was also, Hey, you know, life partner, will you also quit your job and move across the country? You know, uh, and it was, there was bits of that for all of us. So I, I just want to highlight that because I think, um, you know, uh, 
it's it's easy to focus on the four of us, but if it wasn't for incredibly supportive uh, uh, networks in our in our family specifically, this this quartet would not exist either. So, truth, truth. <laughs> yes, shout out to everybody who made this happen. Really, it's 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 very true, and it's very um, nice of you to to bring that up because I think a lot of people forget about that. Yes, that's that's a huge thing and that's a huge sacrifice on on their end to follow us if we want to go somewhere. So it's it's a huge investment. Um, I want to talk about a, the date that I saw on Wikipedia, February 12th, 2006. I thought that was, was very, very important. When uh, you went to the gig that Peter already mentioned at the Neo Futurarium, right? And as David said at the beginning, you had to learn a lot about business. It seemed like you met a person there who helped you a lot with the ensemble in non-musical ways. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because we don't talk about that stuff enough. And who was uh, who is Ethelbert Williams, and how have they assisted you? Yeah. Sure, it's uh, actually uh, um, but he gets he gets all Sorry, sorts of No worries at all. Um, Atelbert um, is, as you say, a longtime friend of the group and of us personally. Um, Atelbert is someone that I, I probably met first because we were both in the Northwestern University marching band, um, not at the same time, but um, he had graduated a few years before, uh, you know, the four of us in the quartet. Um, but just a uh, you know, a really, really talented percussionist himself, um, who actually uh, majored in percussion, uh, at least for a short time at Northwestern. Um, so he was just a big fan. And um, he came to that show at the New York Futurium, which was one of our very first shows. I would, I would say for me personally, our first, like, uh, sort of, well, I'll say our most successful show to date. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we had done a couple of other shows where we were really just like, I don't know, let's play these pieces. And then they were like, you know, they, they nearly killed us because of the instruments that were required. And we forgot to tell people to come to the shows and like, you know, all kinds of stuff. But this one, we like advertised, we put it on as a show in the way that Peter was describing. Um, and we felt great about it. And Atelbert came up to us afterwards and said, that was awesome. Have you thought about this list of like a dozen things? And we were like, no, not at all. And please help us. <laughs> And, um, and so he, he, uh, helped put together our first press kit. Um, he helped to market our first CD. He joined our board of directors. He's one of our first, the first members of our board of directors, which, which is some, a, kind of an idea we can, we can expand upon if any, if that seems like it's of interest, but, um, he has been a member of our team almost as long as anyone. Um, and and he's an, he's uh, one very prominent example, and there are others as well of people who, uh, I mean, I mentioned our families, but the, the sort of the other support network that makes Third Coast Percussion possible. That's incredible. So what was the biggest takeaway? If you could go back or if you could now take on some baby quartets and let's say that they they are figuring out, you know, their artistic selves, that you cannot microwave into growth, right? Um, it, it's just going to happen over time and they're doing the right thing, but they have no clue about press kits or marketing or what to do with an album. Like, 
Do you have a resource that they could go to? What would you suggest to them? Or just go look up a Telbert? Well, um, it's something that we've we've spoken about a number of times in a number of different ways when we when we do either interviews, podcasts like this. Um, a few of those are out there. We we actually have on our YouTube channel a series called TCP FAQ, um, and there's a there's a a video or two in there that talk about how we divide up administrative responsibilities in the group, how Third Coast got started. So that's a definite resource to check out, um, and then. The other thing I'd say before, you know, I'll turn over to the other guys that have a lot of different ideas, but um, I would say do what we did, which is um, reach out to the people who are doing what you could see yourself wanting to do and take them out for coffee or lunch or something and just uh, come really prepared with, with questions as specific as you want and ask, you know, and it, in all in almost all walks of life, I would say certainly in the percussion community, people are generous, you know, I think with, with their advice and their time. Um, so, uh, it, it never, it really honestly never hurts to ask. Yeah. Yeah. I'll sort of piggyback on that and say like, for sure, anyone who's doing something creatively that looks like what you think you want to do in some way, but even people outside of your, outside of your field who are just knowledgeable about the, a particular aspect of it. Cause I know, you know, Atelbert's background was in marketing and he was able to give us, you know, and still gives us such amazing uh, direction and perspective on that. But I remember also sitting down and having meetings with people who like did grant writing for uh, various like local institutions that were not necessarily music things or, you know, did marketing or um, budgeting for other types of organizations. And I think uh, there are a lot of people out there who are way more knowledgeable about that stuff than we are even now, and certainly than we were 15 years ago. Um, and uh, it almost never hurts to ask for advice. People are, are usually, uh, at the very least, uh, flattered that you think you, they would have advice to offer. You know, So I think that's, that's a great place to start. And then the other bit of advice I'll throw on the pile is just like schedule, put it on the schedule. If there's something that, you, that needs to get done, uh, put it on the schedule rather than thinking about like, oh, it'd be cool to do that sometime. Um, and that could be anything from like a uh, creative project that no one else is pushing you to do that you want to do uh, to like uh, having a time to make a five-year plan with your chamber group. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I would uh, kind of just sort of piggyback on what Rob was saying, and I think this also relates to like what E or Atelbert, you know, brought to us is just um, the idea of just like being really proactive and like uh, setting goals and setting attainable goals for yourself um, is just really important. And like, uh, yeah, I mean, with 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 Atelbert, like the goals that he set for us in the very beginning were like, I need you to record an EP album because like nobody knows what you do unless you have an actual product to show people what it is. He's like, I need you to get press kits uh, or I need you to get press photos, you know, so, you know, you can market yourself and like, and there's just a handful of these other things that uh, were clearly, I mean, they were, they were marketing, but they're also like, um, you know, you have to do this as like a group. You have to have some type of product to, to show people what it is that you actually do. This was back in like the mid aughts where like that was like a CD you know, now it's, it's obviously a different thing, you know, um, but, uh, but, you know, for anybody, um, nothing just happens. There are very few times in life where something just like 
appears magically, <laughs> you know, uh, in your career. It's, it's cool and it does, uh, but, but uh, if you are betting on that to get you where you want to go in your career, it's probably not going to work out for you. It's certainly not going to work out in like uh, in a good time frame, you know, for you. So, you know, everything that Third Coast does, there's a series of Google Docs behind it. <laughs> you know, there's always a plan. There's always um, literally you, you could take it any any version, anything that we've done that's been successful. Um, it's due to like a lot of planning, uh, a lot of sort of team strategy, yeah, you know, building and just really proactive work. I might just add in one, one more, it's very similar to what everyone's saying, just a different way of thinking of it or reframing it at the core. So our advice to baby quartet or baby uh, chamber ensemble at the core of what you do, make sure that artistically it's the best that you can possibly do and that you love it and that you're excited to do it. And when you think about doing it, you just want to do it more and more. Um, Cause then when you have to do grunt work, <laughs> you can always rely on the fact you're like, this is in service of something that I really believe in. And it, it, it almost doesn't really matter what it is, as long as you believe in it and it's at, for what it is, it's at a very high quality. Um, then be able to very quickly and succinctly tell someone about it. And in a way that seems natural to you, that you would be excited about. So, uh, uh, you know, do something really well, well, and then have an elevator pitch about it. And these days, it, um, depending on where in your career, that might be just being able to get your friends excited about what you're doing and what you want to do after college. Or if you're in, if you're starting something out and you do have an album up on SoundCloud, have something ready to go to tell people about like, yeah, this, you got to check out this project. If someone asks, you can, but, uh, by being able to talk about it in a sincere um, way that works for whatever your personality is, then you can do what things won't just appear, you help to will them into the universe. So um, for example, it was a goal with many Google Docs and with you know Talbert and other board members, um, strategic planning for Third Coast to become an ensemble in residence. So Dave, uh, who was the executive is the executive director and went to a lot of booking conferences and that sort of thing. Um, basically succinctly boiled down what that goal is and just told a lot of people about it. And he was, we were like genuinely excited about it. This is something that we want and just put it out into the universe. And, uh, someone was listening one of the times that he was saying it. And it was not a friend that we already had, but it was through other connections and um, if we had just sat around, not put it on a calendar, not made a Google Docs, and not um, not externalized it just to ourselves, thought, you know, it'd be really cool if we were ensemble in residence. I wonder how that's going to happen. Oh, well. <laughs> um, it, we wouldn't have gotten that position. We had to, like, plan for it and be intentional about it. Yeah, absolutely. And then be lucky. <laughs> of course, a little bit of luck never, never is rejected. Um, awesome. So let's move on to 2017 and that Grammy performance where I, I felt like when I, as I watched it, my palms were sweating and I was just like, what is happening? I can't believe this is happening. And then I thought to myself, oh my God, what is it like to be on stage? And I'd love to hear sort of behind the scenes because we think, I mean, obviously the Grammys 
are very glamorous in their own right. But also I assume that such a huge production, maybe maybe they did only give you orange M&Ms and like the drink that you wanted and infinite sound check time. Maybe they didn't, but what was it like to to do that? What was it like to win a Grammy? I mean, what what that's like, I don't even know. I don't even know how to ask the question. Just tell me, what's it like to be associated with a Grammy? Well, uh, I'll talk about the, the performance first, since that's what you, where you started with. Um, we, we, we performed at the premiere ceremony, premiere ceremony in 2017 with Ravi Coltrane, really amazing saxophone player. And um, there was not infinite sound check time. <laughs> in fact, how that came about is we were nominated and Ravi was nominated. And the producer of, of the Grammys, uh, who's a, a producer at the time, who's this incredible musician who sort of knows a little bit about every single genre of music that you could ever imagine, knew that there was an association between John Coltrane and his, and the, specifically the harmonic language that he used in, and Steve Reich and his music. And that was the album we were nominated for. Um, so he called and said, hey, would you be uh, interested in performing uh, you know, some of Steve Reich's music with Robbie Coltrane soloing over it. And we were all just like, that is not something we've ever thought about. <laughs> um, but it was actually, this ties into something we've been talking about, you know, for the past 40 minutes. Like, it was awesome because it made us reframe the context that we have in our minds of what our music is and how it can live and all this sort of stuff. Um, and uh, and then we started preparing for that performance. And we knew that we were gonna be very nervous. And that's, I think the most nervous I've been for a performance at the th only thing I, only reference I could draw for how nervous I was for that show was like my senior or, or master's recital, like a solo recital where I was like, uh, you know, my degree counts on this or something like that. It's weird that those two would equate in, in, in at least in my mind, but um, uh, that led us to be like, well, the best way to deal with a situation where you know you're going to be really, really nervous is to rehearse more than you could possibly imagine um, in more ways than you could possibly imagine. So that essentially what you're doing is saying that the worst that this performance could possibly go is still, uh, you know, world-class. <laughs> so we played a piece, we played the last movement of Steve Reich's Mallet Quartet. And we had recorded that piece, obviously. We had probably performed it over a hundred times and we rehearsed it like we had never heard the piece before <laughs> for a month or more from the moment we knew we were gonna play it until the performance. Um, when we actually got together with Ravi, we ran it one time and that was it. <laughs> that was all the time we had. Uh, so we played, we played it with him twice now. We played it once during the dress rehearsal and we played it once on stage with him. Um, luckily Robbie's a genius and so all he needed to know was when it was going to end. So we, we worked out one cue, which is, this is four bars from the end. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'll just say that it worked because the performance wasn't flawless. Um, you know, I think you can still find it online. Um, and if you watch, there's little flubs and stuff like that, but the energy was there and, um, and it was something we were really, really proud of. And, um, and sort of so we, in, in spite of the nerves, you know, we we did what we wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, I always relate it. And I don't ride motorcycles, but I, I relate it to like the feeling of riding a motorcycle, you know, 100 miles an hour, you know, down a road. That's what that performance felt like because it was um, 
everything was like very, very scripted too, in terms of like uh, the Grammy performance, like the production of it, it's like, it's down to the exact like second, you know, and there are, there's like time code that you're seeing from like on the stage to make sure that people aren't talking too long or like whatnot. And we knew exactly what was it, was it, was it Margaret Cho who was the, uh, yeah. So we knew, so, so Margaret Cho was like the MC at that, that thing. And we knew exactly what her lines were going to be right before we played. And as soon as she said that final line, the lights were going to come up on us and instantly. And we had to go just like immediately, you know? And uh, yeah. So I just remember us like, and, and, you know, we were, we were ushered onto the stage and the, the, um, all the tech people were helping us like set up our, our instruments as she was like talking, you know, for like three minutes before we're about to play. And we're like, okay, okay. And we're like, okay. And she says that and it's bam. And, you know, and then you just like immediately like you're into like the piece. So it was like this like incredible adrenaline rush. That was, it was awesome. It was super cool, but uh, yeah, yeah, nuts. And then uh, we we knew that right after that we had to get back into the audience because they were going to announce our category. Literally like five minutes after our concert or our performance, so we get down to that and we're like, oh my god, that was like an amazing you know rush of a thing. And then we uh we went out into the audience and like we sat down and literally like a minute later they announced our category and we won. We're like, oh my gosh, and we get up and then we go up on the stage. So it was a uh, yeah, it was just like a very energized sort of moment in time it was fun for sure yeah the production aspect of it is like pretty astounding to experience um because it was very like you know there was definitely not infinite sound check time and there was definitely not any like we'll take care of you whatever it was but it was like we knew that it was going to work exactly right you know it was like they had gone through and they were like you know, they gave us all the details. And even though there was not like, we're going to rehearse this a million times till everyone just feels super comfortable. It was like, we know what we're doing. As long as you do this, everything's going to be great. Do it. <laughs> and then we did it and everything, it just, you know, it all worked. Um, and they're doing that, you know, with like dozens and dozens of artists over the course of, of that day. And, you know, we, we had the experience of, uh, you know, uh, playing at and then get to see a little bit of the premiere ceremony and then uh, and in the evening we get to go see the the telecast ceremony you got really good seats which is pretty awesome and one of my favorite aspects of watching that big uh, evening ceremony was seeing the production of that too in real time because like Beyonce is performing over here and like there's great like amazing things going on both artistically and production wise and then like while it's happening you know, 50 feet away on the other stage, just kind of on the other end of the, the room um, or, you know, like 50 feet over or something. <laughs> They're like completely dismantling another set and setting up another set. And you can like sort of tell that it's happening back there. Um, and then at some point, you know, the curtain over there comes up and I don't know, Katy Perry's over there doing something else completely ridiculous. And it's like all completely getting built and deconstructed in very short amount, short amounts of time uh it's 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 super cool to to see the whole experience is definitely like uh it feels very um uh like removed from uh normal lives you know the whole thing it felt very surreal obviously to get nominated and then it felt very surreal to be like asked to play and then to get to play all that stuff um and then you get there and you're like this is not what my life looks like <laughs> um we got to like go to this because we were performing uh we got to like go to this special tent where people were showing us prototype beauty products and giving us like new board game concepts and just being like what do you think of this do you want to take this home <laughs> and like <laughs> gave us a, just a giant duffel bag to like take home all this stuff that like 
uh, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. I have like two of the items left from that bag. Everything else has sort of found its way to family and friends over the years, which is pretty fun. But, you know, and it's an awesome and amazing experience and like uh, something you never forget. And and then, you know, the next week you're like back to doing what we do. And we're like at an elementary school full of kids playing marimba and talking about melody. And then we're like going to another city. We're playing a concert. We're going to another city and we're, you know, uh, all the things are happening. Um, and somehow, you know, uh, I have not been asked to go to another tent where people give me prototype beauty products <laughs> since then. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I felt bad for the people who were from different countries who like, you know, showed up, came all the way from Japan with their stuff. And then they end up talking to me and, <laughs> and they're like, what do you think about this, uh, this robe? Like, I love it. I think you should market it. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, oh, great. Here, stand and take your picture with us. Like, fine. Great. Like, that's not going to help you sell anything, but I'll take my picture with you. That's fine. <laughs> it was it was really fun. And like, what I always, like, one of my favorite memories of that whole experience, too, beyond all this, like, really kind of, like, fun, glamorous, glitzy thing, you know, that, that, that we were kind of, like, talking about was actually, it was the morning... I guess it would have been the the, the morning of the the, the 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 premiere show where we were we were um, uh, we were in our dressing room and uh, and this is at like nine in the morning you know and our dressing room happened to be uh, between the dressing rooms of Metallica and Lady Gaga uh, so we're so we're in the dressing room it's like nine in the morning you know where our nerves are starting to come up we're like kind of like warming up we're like okay this is gonna happen and then all of a sudden I start hearing like like a like vocal warm-ups going on and, and I'm like what is that and I like walk into like where the bathroom area and I can hear through the 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 wall and I'm here like and I was like oh my gosh that's it's Lady Gaga you know she's you know doing some vocal warm-ups in the in the next room I'm like that's pretty cool and then all of a sudden you know you hear on the other side it's like like wait what and like Metallica is in their dressing room uh running through their set and it, it was it was a, a surreal moment for sure to be like surrounded by these like amazing like pop culture you know icons, but even more than that, uh, what was really I, I thought was really important to me is that like uh, you know uh, Lady Gaga and Metallica and like artists of that caliber artists of that caliber is like I think tend to be stereotyped in certain ways that it's just uh you know it's just sort of like effortless or it's just um, you know, they just show up the last minute to the gig, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But like, the reality is like the musicians that play at the highest level, whatever your genre is, uh, they're there at nine in the morning, warming up because they got to put on an awesome show, you know? And so like, there was also like that, being able to see that uh, was actually really inspiring to me to see all these artists of all these different genres that they were there to celebrate music and celebrate how wonderful it is to be a musician, but also like really hardworking, you know? Uh, it's it's not effortless at all, uh, no matter what type of music that you play. So. Yeah, that's a, that's really, that's really interesting. That's a really cool story. Um, I, my next question was gonna be uh, sort of how does getting a Grammy affect one's life and career? But then I thought someone asked a question on social media uh, asking who is your barber and who does your costumes because you all look so fly all the time. And now I think the answer is all in that tent when you got all that fountain of youth stuff that is only for the famous people. And now you get to just, you know, be rocking out all the time. Yeah, we got to drink the elixir of life. And now, <laughs> now our press photos are taken care of for the next few decades. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, 
how does getting a Grammy change one's life or maybe your, your, you know, ensemble's life? My family thinks that I actually have a real job now. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife likes to say, my wife had, like phrased it really well when, when we won, like the Grammy is legible to everybody. If you say, I play in one of the premier percussion quartets, if that's where we are in the, you know, in the country, in the world, whatever, people are like, what? But if you say, we won a Grammy, everyone and their grandmother and their auntie are all like, oh, okay. So you're a musician, you know? <laughs> um, and I will say that, like, uh, my favorite thing about the Grammys is something that one of the other guys alluded to. It really is all these different genres of music coming together and a community of musicians, working musicians, um, you know, through a voting process, but, you know, supporting each other and and um, and recognizing the achievements of, of one another. Maybe my least favorite thing is just with awards in general, there's this feeling of like, you know, win or lose this sort of like athletic uh, competition vibe of it, which I never attracted me. And the reason, one of the reasons I like being a musician is because I don't think you can win or lose as a musician. I think you can give a better or worse performance based on your own uh, standards or, or your audience's standards. But um but, you know, the, the competition aspect, oh, that's a little tricky. But I will say that um, when we were standing on stage and we had won and Rob was speaking and accepting the award uh, uh, and thanking people, I remember looking at the other guys and, and like very vividly remembering when we were students, when we were like, you know, loading marimbas into our sedans for our very first gig, you know, um, driving through snowstorms on Valentine's Day, you know, just like these horrible <laughs> things that we've done to like be a, a percussion group, you know, a professional group. Um, and it, it did, uh, at least for me personally, provide a, a perspective and a moment of reflection to say, um, wow, you know, we worked really hard and I'm just gonna enjoy this. <laughs> Conversely, now, when it still happens, when we're driving through snowstorms on Valentine's Day and loading a marimba onto an elementary school stage, which still happens, it is pretty nice to have a memory like, you know what, we've, been, we've reached a, an amount of acceptance and support that we get, we get to have a little badge of honor, which is, which is nice. Um, it's something that we can just, you know, have as a memory and help us keep going. Maybe my favorite thing about the entire experience was like right after it happened and through the next morning, through the next week, like just phone and email and Facebook messages and everything is like blowing up with all of the like other percussionists and other musicians who were like reaching out to like say to say congrats and to say how happy they were for us and how proud they were and all, all these things. And it's like to like realize that you are part of this really wonderful community of people and that it feels like especially for percussionists, I think felt like a win for, for all of us on some level that like, cool, like, you know, I, especially when we were getting started, I remember, uh, you know, looking at like chamber music competitions and it's like percussion ensembles weren't eligible either like explicitly or like just kind of by matter of how long it would take us to set up or whatever. And, and, um, and to like, be like, well, this is, you know, from a, 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 a pretty broadly viewed perspective of like a award for <laughs> for music in this category like a percussion ensemble has won this and it like 
we are part of this, you know, and that um, felt like, yeah, it felt like, felt like a big moment. It felt like a nice thing. And I think uh, as sort of Dave was alluding to, the thing about music in contrast to like sports or, or something is that like it's, um, you know, it's not about the winning and losing. It's about like the thing you create that you share with other people, you know, and I think the uh, one of the awesome things about winning a Grammy and or, you know, about being nominated even um is that it has then opened up more doors for us to share, to create and share more things with more people. And I think because of the legibility of the Grammy, I think it's helped to get us in front of different audiences. It's, it's helped us to, um, to get other kinds of collaborators, you know, even just more open and more interested to, to exploring what uh, kind of collaborations we could, we could do together and, and what could come out of it. And then that reaches, uh, you know, different people than we would if it, just as a percussion quartet in our world. So, um, that's that's kind of the dividends I think in the, in the big picture and there's because all the things we're doing uh, are sort of planned over a long time and take time to develop. It, was, it wasn't like you know the day after the Grammys in 2017, all of a sudden our life was different. But it was like you know the calls we were making in March of 2017 were getting answered a little bit more, and that led to more projects that then got developed in 2018 or premiered in 2019, et cetera. And so like, it's, it's just gradually kind of added um, heat to the fire as things keep moving forward. And um, you can't necessarily draw a line of like, here's what would have happened if we hadn't won the Grammy and here's what happened because we did, but it all sort of just contributes to the momentum. I will agree that I definitely felt an investment in that victory being for all of us. So I'm sorry, or, or, or you're welcome, but you're sharing this uh, victory and this Grammy with, I think, five to 10,000 percussionists all over the world. So <laughs> I, I really feel like it was it was a huge thing for the art form. So that's, that's amazing. Um, and, you know, looking at your body of work, which is so impressive, 13 albums, 11 that you were featured on, and then you've done everything from concerti to playing on elementary school stages to composing to teaching to outreach. You published an album last year, you're publishing an album this year, and these are all huge. How do you curate all of this stuff? Obviously, I, see, I think Google Docs are the app for all of us to have on our phones, but how do you do this much creative work and how much of it is uh, now informed through market research? That was my, my other question is how much of it is you listening to what sort of the zeitgeist is and responding to that and how much of it is just like, oh, I've always wanted to do this, let's do this. Those are really good questions. Um, I think that the way we do uh, so many things is actually very, very natural. Um, going back to a question you asked a while ago, we, what, what did we envision our lives like once we became a full-time percussion ensemble? I remember conversations that we had, which seem hilarious now, because we were like, well, once we're a full-time percussion ensemble, I'm going to like spend three hours a day practicing, uh, you know, this instrument that I've always wanted to play or something like that. And, and the reality is that our days fill up, um, quickly. And I think that the reason that they do is because each of the four of us have an appetite for a lot of music and a lot of projects. Um, and we are actually, I think still, I, I, I think this is true, still like reining ourselves in a lot, you know, there's, there's things that we want to do and we sort of 
I sort of have to say, well, I think now's maybe not the time because we already said we do this, 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 and this. Um, um, and um, the number of projects is, is just an outgrowth, I think, of, of who we are. I also think there's a, we have an amazing uh, staff and we have a pretty well-defined at this point division of labor. So um, it's not like Peter has to think about the lighting for every single concert that we do. And I don't have to think about how, like the check from every single concert. And Rob doesn't have to think about, you know, fill in the blank. We, we have roles that we, that have grown naturally through the growth of the organization and sometimes very deliberately have uh, created um, roles to divide up all the work and then um, have gotten really lucky but have been intentional too with our hiring and have, have purposely uh, welcomed onto the team amazing, passionate, reliable, hardworking people who we could trust with anything. <laughs> um, so there's there's four full-time ensemble members, but there's also three full-time staff members who um, have really, really, really helped our capacity. And without, um, I, I specifically remember when we when we first hired the first employee that wasn't an ensemble member, um, Liz Pesnell, and she was just a part-time hire. And immediately, <laughs> our lives just instantly became better. <laughs> just like, oh my gosh. We're playing a concert and someone answered an email about something. What? <laughs> you know? So it's, you know, it's pretty amazing. Just like even that, the fact that the ensemble can be doing something, but the organization can be focused on something else too. We're really lucky, but it, you know, it took a long time to build up and we were intentional about it. But that, that's, a, I think, really does add to our capacity at this point and yeah. our ability to do different projects. Yeah. And, and then we are, um, we're not unique. Uh, but we are um, the way that we are organized and the way that we have been organized now since um, uh, 2013 is like, th this is our only job, you know, uh, the third coast percussion is my full-time job and it is the full-time job of Dave and Sean and Rob. And uh, it doesn't allow for us to do anything else. <laughs> if that makes, I, I can't take another job. You know, I can't, I can't, also be like a part-time teacher at a university or also take this other gig. It's like, this is all we do. Um, and when, when we made that decision to go all in and, uh, and, and, and we went all in and we, we still maintain today. I mean, like we have like regular hours, like everybody works the same amount of time every day. It's like a nine to five job Monday through Friday in a normal week, you know? So it's like, there's a, this is our, our, our full-time job. And when we, uh, when we made that commitment, um, the capacity just exploded. Um, it, it was, it was, it was so different because now rather than the four of us focusing on third coast, but also doing those other jobs that we were doing, it's like, no, we're focusing exclusively on third coast percussion. And yeah, I mean, just the, the capacity exploded. And then when we started hiring, uh, staff, uh, with the same expectations that like, this is your full-time job. So like you have regular full-time like hours, you know, and so like you are doing this exclusively for us um uh that also just our capacity exploded and we've, we've always we've always looked at just different areas of like music industry and um 
trying to figure out what is the better decision to either contract something out or just hire an employee to do it full-time for us. You know, um, this, this gets into like a larger like conversation about, you know, certain things that we have that, that our employees like do, but, um, yeah, there are, there are other, there are other organizations, musical organizations where like the performing members are not full-time, you know, like, like, like they don't have full-time hours. There are other performing organizations where the performers are not involved in any of the administrative stuff. Um, and, uh, but that's what we are. And so we have this very sort of holistic approach to third coast percussion that I think um, for us has served us really well. It's, we're not unique. There are, there are a handful of other groups like this, but um, I would say it's more unique uh, in the classical world that how we're sort of set up. I was intrigued by the part of your question that touched yeah. upon how we chose, how we choose our different artistic projects and and Rob looks like he's anxious and I'll <laughs> to talk about it. And he probably has a lot of thoughts too. So I'll just say it's really case by case. I, I would say sometimes an awesome, amazing, inspiring collaborator comes to us and says, Hey, would you ever want to do this with us? And we say, Oh, it's so cool that you even know who we are. Yes, of course. We'd love to work with you. Sometimes it's um, a planned uh, set aside, set aside artistic planning meeting where we, where we sit down and we're like, we have a limited amount of capacity who are the music creators that we really want to reach out to who aren't in our network right now, who maybe aren't writing for percussion that we want to make sure become part of our world. And then there's a spectrum in between. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I was just going to, to yeah, talk about that same question. I think it's a very interesting question. Um, we don't, I don't, I wouldn't say we do any sort of like formal market research um, where we're trying to figure out like what's going to be the next trend in percussion ensemble <laughs> music or something. I don't know. But, um, but I think we're all, you know, pretty attuned to just like what's going on out there generally and and like uh you know listening to a lot of different music and checking out a lot of different artists and um and i think being very open-minded about like what the possibilities are um and then i think we there's a little bit of like a process that happens i think partially just from doing this for the years that we have i think we've gained a little bit of maybe an intuitive understanding of like okay if we do this that'll be a really cool project and i think here's how that would go in terms of touring or recording or whatever. And then, but if we do this project, I think that would be really interesting and cool and it'll be good for this, but it, it's, we're probably not gonna be able to tour that or what, you know, whatever. And sometimes it comes down to specifics, but sometimes it's understanding, um, the landscape more broadly. Cause you know, we don't exist in a vacuum, even just aside from like, it's not just us in an audience, but so much of what we do is happening, uh, because there are concert presenters, people who run festivals and series and all these things. Um, who are excited about the things we're offering and want to bring us in. And so we're starting with like, here's the projects we want to do. Here's the things we're excited about. Um, but if, even if we're like super duper sold on something and no one wants to present it, then basically we will maybe do it one time in Chicago and then like it might not happen again. Um, and so, uh, and occasion, and I think some of the different projects we do maybe also have, uh, multiple different purposes or goals, or at least just like maybe have different goals between the projects. And sometimes there's certain things that are like the projects we do where it's about the collaborative process. Maybe there's an educational aspect to working with a composer who's earlier in their career. 
And like, yeah, if we get a piece that we can like tour everywhere, that's great. But like, it's about like giving this person the opportunity to explore their voice on percussion instruments. And even if we do do the piece one time, it's an awesome collaboration. And that artist comes away with like some different perspectives about it. That's, that's like a success. Whereas if we like invest all of our organizational like marketing and fundraising and everything to commission composer X for a big piece, and we can only play it one time, like that's not great <laughs> for our organization. Um, and so I think, and there's sort of a constant feedback process where we're maybe even talking to presenters a few years out about something. And if no one's getting excited about it, we may sort of modify course a little bit um, as we're going. But I think, you know, we're between the four of us, we're genuinely passionate about a lot of different possibilities. And I think we try to always start from there. And if, if one of the four of us or two of the four of us are super excited about a project or uh, someone we can work with, then like, cool, let's go with that and see where it, where it can take us. And then uh, we sort of see how it proceeds from there. I'll just point out a very specific example because it's like staring at me <laughs> in my background uh, here. This, um, uh, at, there was an anniversary recently, a few years back, of the birth of Lou Harrison. And we had conceived of a program that we thought um, that we loved, you know, the music that was in our repertoire, that we paired um, with Lou Harrison. We also got um, possibilities of commissioning based on some similar setups. Um, at the same time, um, a, uh, uh, someone brought the idea to us of co-composing or somehow making a movie film score to a children's film called Paddle to the Sea, which we had never heard of at all. But we watched it and we were like, actually, this would be totally worth our time and it would be inspiring. And so we, we created these two programs, which we were equally artistically, like, we would put on any stage if anyone gave the opportunity to. And we got to do the Harrison concert, I think, maybe once or twice, um, just because of the people that we had been talking to at the time were really intrigued by this concert of a show that dealt with issues of uh, water rights and um, music that all uh, was born out of uh, these specific influences. There's a lot of things for our Paddle to the Sea program. So um, instead of making an album of our concert of the Lou Harrison project, we are like, organizationally, it makes a lot more sense for us to make an album of Paddle to the Sea. It really is so... Uh, invigorating to hear you speak because there is something that uh, there's a way in which people describe your quartet those who know you more intimately than than I do and um, everybody just says that you are really solid awesome honest people and and that's exactly what I am getting now as I, I'm learning through through this podcast platform about all these ways in which I should do this. And I hope our listeners are, too. Um, and so in many ways, you have achieved several of my dreams. So besides, uh, you know, playing what in front of Beyonce, Jesus, I mean, that was supposed to be me. I was supposed to be the first marimbas that she hears. But like, OK, I'll forgive you. The second one is Danny Elfman. I mean, Danny Elfman was the first person I remember I was in high school, and that was the first time that I became really interested in modulations because I heard his music with Tim Burton. I just loved every Tim Burton film. And I would hear them be like, ooh, I know, like harmony, what is this? How'd you get to work with him? Does he talk about hands all the time? Have you seen his collection of hands? And like, how was that? That's so incredible. Yeah, he's a, 
I'll also just say a couple of things. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about with that project, but um, I think one of the really interesting things about uh, working with him was actually the, the when we first met him, we had an opportunity. We were on tour. We were in LA, um, and this was right when like the commissioning process was just beginning with him, and so we were just we we would never talk to each other before, and and it, so the stars aligned, and he was in LA, and we were in LA, and so we we got together um, after this concert this one night, and then um, realized just from talking to him, you know, that, that he's actually a, a percussionist, a trained percussionist, has this whole history of percussion. I mean, he like used to build marimbas himself, like by hand and like, you know, there's all these like crazy like stories. And um, uh, so that was just sort of like really inspiring. And like, we were geeking out on like, you know, really obscure instruments. He's like, oh yeah, I have like a metal Deegan Anklung from, you know, uh, I mean, like it was just, just all, all this like crazy stuff. So I think that's, to me, that was like a, a really sort of inspiring moment. We're realizing that like, you know, this is this person that has created all these iconic like film scores and whatnot, but he's also just like a drummer and a, and a, and a percussionist and just really passionate about it too. So, so to talk to him and, and see how excited he was to have the opportunity to write for an ensemble for ours was, was pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, at that same meeting, I just remember him talking about his incredible passion for classical music. Which of course you hear in his in his film scores, you know, um, but he is. I, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but he, the way he sounds when he talks, he's as excited about writing classical music right now as he is about writing film scores and rock music. Um, and and the other thing that I have loved about working with him that has felt like another sort of like reinforcement of some things that Peter was talking about when we were at the Grammys. Um, Danny is super professional and has extremely high expectations. You know, we, when we were premiering the piece, we, a lot of times we, we rehearse a ton, <laughs> just like so much. <laughs> and we have really high standards for ourselves. And so we're kind of um, accustomed to showing up and, and playing a composer's music for them for the first time and having them say, and I, I just, I'm not bragging on us or anything, but a lot of times people say, wow, that sounds really great. I don't have any comments. Uh, but Danny had lots of comments, lots and lots of comments. And it wasn't a thing of like, you guys aren't doing this right. It was just a lot of like, he had a very specific idea in his head about just about every single moment of his piece. Um, and he was not a jerk about it at all. He was awesome. But um, and then and then that was for the premiere. And then he produced the recording uh, that we're putting out in a, in a couple months. Same deal. Uh, every aspect. It was never he knew when he had an opinion and he knew exactly what that opinion was at every single moment. Um, and it's just, it was just a, a cool lesson for us, like, a, you know, a reinforcement of a lesson that we've had many times over the course of our careers. Yeah, he has such a, he has like such like a, a singular, I mean, his voice is, um, it's so particular. It is like Danny Elfman, you know, you hear the piece that he wrote for us, you hear any of the music he writes, you're like, oh yeah, that's Danny Elfman, you know? And it's like this, it's a super specific aesthetic that he has created for himself, you know, over the course of his career. But yeah, it's interesting him even hearing his stories of, you know, working with other ensembles and, you know, I, he, he talks a lot. I remember him talking a lot about just like, no, the, the rhythm just needs to be, you know, he has this sort of insistence to his music. And he's like, sometimes, you know, 
players like they'll look at it and be like, oh well, maybe I can go. Oompa, 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 oompa. He's like, no, I just want. <laughs> it needs to be insistent and, and he's really confident with that voice that he's created for himself and i i, I think we all found that very very inspiring um yeah because it was yeah. it's a it was an honor to you know play play a new piece by him that is very much like his voice yeah, yeah for sure yeah i was like so uh kind of in awe of him throughout the process i mean i think like despite how what an incredibly big name he is you know um like he was throughout the process of writing this piece he was like asking a lot of questions he wanted like samples of all these different instruments he's going to try out like okay well what about this metal thing what does that sound like and like we'd send him all these different things so that he could i mean he was really getting in the weeds with all the details and finding like that exact here's exactly what i want this to sound like um and also like hearing him talk about sort of the trajectory of his career. He's done a whole, I mean, everyone knows his film scores, obviously, but like Oingo Boingo and then like um, the concert music he's writing now and all these different things and sort of at each stage of the process, like him basically being willing to be like, oh, I have an opportunity to like move into this world. I want to move into this world. I'm going to go get it. <laughs> and like, and, and like getting pushback from people who are like, well, do you really know what you're doing? He's like, this is what it is. This is what it's supposed to be. And like coming in with that attitude of like, I, I do know what I'm doing. Even if like on some level he was like, oh gosh, do I know what I'm doing? But he like, but I think artistically he really knew what he was doing. And he, he's always known like what that sound is in his head. And he's put in the work at every step of the way to like really flesh out exactly what it is that, that he's trying to do. Um, and I think it still is just like so focused on the craft of making music, which is like so awesome to see for someone who's at that level. And, um, and he seems like in the big picture, really organized in terms of like, okay, well I can do this many film scores a year. And then I, you know, to make room for concert music, maybe I I'm doing one less of these projects so that I have time to do this. Cause it all takes up so much time. And he's like, doing it such a high level and like was just like so cool to work with in the process too like this the first meeting uh, um I, I hope i'm remembering but that first meeting we had with him where he like came and met us during the intermission of a concert we were doing in la and i think he'd like just gotten off a plane from like london and he like came to our show to meet with these four percussionists that he'd never met before and who like were really lucky to have him write us a piece you know um and like hung out with us and talked about all this stuff it was like He's he's interested in all the things that you'd want a collaborator to be interested in. At the end of the meeting, he's like, I, it was awesome hanging with you guys. I got to go home. I got to work on Dumbo, the soundtrack to Dumbo. And I was like, wait a second. I was just in the movie theater and I saw an advertisement for Dumbo. Isn't that coming out in like, <laughs> like six weeks or something? He was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, he's super prolific. And he wrote the piece for us, this big giant four movement piece in like a couple months while he was finishing the score to Dumbo and like all these other, you know, things, I, I don't know how, I don't know how he does it all. It's, it's he very, also, very when he sent us the, the, he sent us, I think some like early mock-ups and the, the pieces in four movements, but the mock-ups were really telling. They were numbered like three, seven, 11 and, you know. Seven. Yeah. So it's like, there's, there's probably like five or six other movements out there, like yeah. sketches of movements. Uh, totally. He like yeah. tried a bunch of ideas. This is another thing that we've heard some certain creatives say. I remember Ed Sheeran this is not someone we've worked with. However, we went to this thing where Ed Sheeran, because uh, of a recording academy thing, um, basically like played a little and talked about his music. And I remember him. And regardless of what you think about Ed Sheeran, uh, he's incredibly successful and like an amazing pop songwriter. 
Um, and I remember him talking about like he writes like 30 or 40 songs for an album, knowing that it's going to be a 10 song album. And he basically throws away <laughs> 30 songs that for any other artist would be their biggest hit ever. Do you know what I mean? Because he's just like, uh, he's like, it has to be this level. And I remember seeing Danny's, um, yeah, just thinking about, wow, all the ideas that he's thrown away, <laughs> like, you know, uh, or, or I, maybe he doesn't, maybe throwing away isn't the right way. Maybe he finds a different place for it or something like that. But uh, there's something really inspiring about that, too, that just sort of um, the way that really creative people have to create all the time. Augusta Reed Thomas is like this as well. She's another composer we've worked with a ton. She wrote us, the first piece she wrote for us, she's written us like a half dozen now, but the first piece she wrote for us, she kept writing and writing and reading, rewriting. And she would come in with 10 minutes of music and throw away eight minutes of the music after hearing us play it. And we were like, this sounds great. Not good enough. You know, she would go back and edit and, and find the moments that, that were better than the other moments, keep those. And then, you know, it was really inspiring. I did want to just really briefly explain how we got connected with Danny Elfman. Um, because it's kind of, it goes back to a lot of things that we've been talking about in other contexts too, like an intentional, big organizational plan that um, yielded some cool, unexpected results. So um, we had for a long time been trying to commission a work from Phil Class. And it took several years, honestly, just even to, to get in touch in like a, a meaningful way um, and included us arranging some of his music that we thought would work really well on percussion instruments and showing that to him and, and creating a work and have, having him write us a really big piece and, and making an album of it, touring it a bunch. And uh, through like a really intentional plan and making sure that it was at the highest possible level that we could, that we could perform it, um, Philip was at the premiere and he was like, wow, that went, that went really well. He's <laughs> like, like, you guys, I like you guys. So like, would you want to come play on my festival? We're like, yeah, we definitely want to play on your festival. That sounds fantastic. He's like, okay, I'll, uh, I'll, my people will reach out to you. And uh, his, his people did reach out to us about playing on this festival. And they let us know that he would like to commission another piece for our ensemble. Uh, from a friend of his and his friend happened to be Danny Elfman oh my god so that was like amazing uh, you know uh in some ways in some ways we we lucked into it sort of but we wouldn't have been in that position unless we had honestly done a lot of work <laughs> um and and planned for a really long time and been you know like able to say okay yes we have the capacity to get a piece from Danny Elfman here's Here's what we're going to do with it. Here's our plan for it. We're definitely going to record this piece. We're going to get it out into the world. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you definitely were prepared, more than prepared for this moment of opportunity to then just take, take advantage of it. But, you know, the next time you see him, just tell him that there's this uh, young, young lady from Serbia whose uh, life in music theory he changed by his beautiful music. So just tell him, like, you know, one of the hosts from, like, the greatest percussion podcast ever is his huge fan. I think he'll... He's he got a new percussion con uh, concerto coming out that Colin Curry is going to play. So I know! Maybe up on that. You should play that. <laughs>
I have to give you a list of, of celebrity musicians who, if next time you have some sort of an agreement with them, just include me in the background. I'll be your triangle clip or something. Just like, please include me. You know, Ed Sheeran included. Um, but let's move on to what is going to happen in the near future for you all. Uh, first of all, the single that's going to come out sort of a few days around when this episode airs. Tell us about Derivative. Yeah, uh, Derivative is a, is a piece written for us by Jay Lynn, who's an incredible composer and music producer, um, who wrote us a set of seven pieces. Uh, the set of pieces is called Perspective, and Derivative is one of those seven. And um, Jay Lynn is an example of a composer who we very intentionally approached because we came to know her music through... Uh, well, speaking for myself, I first learned about it through Pitchfork. I just saw a review. I just read Pitchfork reviews and listen to the music every now and then. And her music just uh, totally captivated us um, because it's it's electronic music. Uh, it comes from a sort of the side of uh, like electronic dance music, but it's so percussion focused and the rhythm, it uh, the rhythmic language is incredibly complex and like endlessly fascinating. So we very intentionally <laughs> approached Jalen about a piece and it took several years because of, you know, to find a time in her schedule when she could write for us. Um, and she, I think is indicative of, of um, this goes back to another question you asked about sort of like, uh, you know, how Third Coast, wh where, what we do in the percussion marketplace or, I think the original question was, did we have a, an intention when we got started of what we would do that others weren't doing? And I think I would agree with, I think Rob answered that, no, we didn't. But I think what we've, what we've come upon is one of the things that we love is reimagining what it means to be a classical musician and how classical music is created. Um, because it is, it can be, like any genre, very siloed. In the case of classical music, it's like if you studied at these uh, institutions with these people and you write music in this way, then I dub the classical music and, you know, go forth and play concerts. Um, but, uh, but to us, classical is just a, a word. <laughs> and what is interesting to us are, is, is, a, is quite hard to define in words, um, but we are drawn to different musicians for different reasons. And if they, uh, create music by writing a notation on Sibelius or Finale or by hand, awesome. But if they create music um, in a digital audio workstation, a DAW, some sort of software-based creation, great. Um, if they create music um, that's primarily improvisational, great. We've worked with a lot of different music creators. Jalen wrote for us uh, music entirely in uh, her digital audio workstation. She sent us a mix down and the stems and we set her music, her sounds and her rhythms on our instruments. And it's one of my favorite creative processes we've ever gone through because we got to, we got to have a, a creative voice in deciding some really specific things that um, I'll be a little crass and say most composers uh, uh, make some sort of decision that is frustrating for percussionists on some level, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they say, yes, that has to be on a, uh, I don't know. Rototom. A rototom. God help us. Yeah. It's like you you really have to play it on rototoms. And it's like, friend, 
you don't want to hear anything on her photo time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, with Jaylin, she was just like, here's the music and we play her music, make no mistake about it, but we set it on the instruments. And so there's an aspect of it that feels good and sounds idiomatic that I think is special and, and cool as well. Yeah. And something I particularly loved about this process too, and the way it worked is like that everything just Dave described is like how it, how it got done. But we also just had like had time during that process to like hang out with Jalen and like listen to music together, listen to things that she was working on, talk about things she was excited about, improvise a little bit, play, like explore sounds, pull things off the shelf and be like, you know, whatever. And then, uh, so I think we got to really understand both that way, just like through the personal interaction and also by like having the stems of all of the, the different voices in her music, like how does it work? What's interesting to her as an artist? Like why does she write music in the way that she does? And like, what's, uh, what is unique about her voice? And like, how do we find our way into that as we're figuring out the way to like orchestrate this on our instruments and figure out how to do it live with four of us and, and whatever. And, um, uh, she talks about her music as she describes it as CPU is her mantra that she wants her music to be clean, precise, and unpredictable. And so like, I think if you have a mix down of some stems and those three words, you're like, cool. I think I, I have some idea what to do. Um, it's a very time consuming process to like go through and, and figure all that stuff out. And we definitely, um, in each of these tracks, each, each of the, the sort of, uh, pieces within her set, like some of them, like, one of us came in with a concept for like, cool, let's orchestrate it this way and use this instrument and that instrument and you do this and we'll combine these two into a setup and whatever. Uh, and it was like, that works pretty well. Cool. And, you know, adjustments were made over time. And then there are one or two movements. Especially I know for the, the two that I was sort of like was the, the initial uh, shepherd for like figuring out how to, to, to orchestrate or at least like where to start. We like tried a couple things. I was like, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Um, and we had to sort of like go back to the drawing board and try something else. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like an incredible learning process. It's something that I think like helps us grow as artists too and, and definitely taught me a lot of things in the process of doing this in, in a different way than just a, a maybe a more traditional commissioning process would. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're all, um, we all really like getting our hands dirty in the creative process of like the music. And then, you know, especially over the past couple of years, we've also just grown really fond of, composing music for each other, you know, or for our ensemble to play or arranging music, you know? Um, and so now some of our current and even future musical collaborations are more of this model that we've been describing that we had with Jay Lynn, where it's just, it's highly collaborative, you know? So it's, it's, it's very far away from the classical model of contacting a composer to write you a piece. And then six months later, you get a score in parts, you know, in the mail. Um, yeah. We, we generally just don't do that at all anymore. Um, yeah. You're now nominated for three Grammys, including as composers, um, which is incredible. Can you tell us about archetypes and how that process is different? And how are you now going to approach the Grammys? You're going to bring a bigger duffel bag when you go? Because you know what's up. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk a bit about archetypes, um, which is our... our most recent album, the new one that comes out has Jalen's music and Danny Elfman's music and another cool project with Flutronics, another arrangement of Philip Glass's work. But the, the previous album was Archetypes, which was created in collaboration with uh, Clarice Assad and Sergio Assad, two other um, actually Chicago-based musicians originally from Brazil. Um, and that, that's a great example of a project that um, 
they approached us. Um, Sergio and Clarice actually came to us after a concert in Chicago uh, with an idea of doing a project with us and perfect example of what Sean was describing, like, oh my gosh, you know who we are? <laughs> uh, yeah, we would love to work with you. Um, <laughs> um, and it was, uh, it was building on this idea of what we're talking about, finding new ways of creating classical music because um, initially the idea was that Sergio and Clarice would write six pieces each to be a part of the set of 12 uh, pieces, each inspired by one of the Jungian, Carl Jung, Carl Jung's ar archetypes. Um, and then as soon as we got started, the four of us said, you know, we'd really like to write some music too. You know, this is something that we're doing more and more of. And, um, and we asked if they'd be okay with it and they, they were. And so um, not only did each of the four of us write one of the archetypes, we also um, had this wonderful collaborative experience working with Sergio and Clarice where they would, they wrote the pieces that they wrote. Um, but sometimes the percussion parts were fully fleshed out and sometimes there were sketches. Um, and at all points, they gave us a ton of latitude to say, you know, what about this voicing instead? Or what about this instrument that you've probably never heard of? Because I wouldn't have heard of it if I wasn't a percussionist. And by the same token, you know, for all of us, I think the first time we'd ever written for classical guitar, we were writing for Sergio Assad, like no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> so we all like sheepishly handed the music to them at the first rehearsal and we're like, please just make it sound good. Change everything, change all of it if you want to. Um, and, and same with Clarice, you know, and so we, uh, they were just incredibly gracious and uh, yeah, I created like all of these projects that we're talking about it created music that absolutely couldn't have been created another way. You know, we could have decided that it was, you know, the four of us write our pieces, the two of them write their pieces, and then we don't talk about it. We just show up and play and do our best. And it would not have been as, uh, as good of an album, I think. So what about the Grammys and what do you expect of that experience or how do you feel about it now that you're a little bit better equipped? It'll be a blast no matter what, what happens. Uh, it is just an honor to be there. I think we talked about this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but like just being there at the Grammys is just a really inspiring experience because you're surrounded by all these other amazing musicians and a variety of different genres. And like, but it's everything is just like a just sort of like an, a, cel a celebration. There's no, it's less about like ego or competitive or whatnot. It's really just like a bunch of musicians getting together and celebrating the fact that we're all able to make music, you know, right now. And it'll be especially exciting this time around because we actually do get to do it in person again. Like the last year's Grammy, you know, was all virtual. So I think we're all just really, really excited about that. It's, it's crazy though. Like it always is like, you know, we're, um, we're in the middle of our touring season. So, uh, we'll be doing a show in New York at BAM uh, the night before. And then the next morning getting up and taking a 5am flight out to Las Vegas uh, to go to the Grammys. And uh, that's great. That that's part of it. You know, it's part of being a musician. It's in Vegas this year. So all bets are off. Anything could happen. You know, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to go to the Grammys with Sergio and Clarice uh, there too. Cause it's just like, it's a cool energy being around them. And um and it's sort of just like expanding the the sort of family of folks that we get to like have the celebration together with. It's going to be, it's going to be super fun. 
I'm particularly excited this year because there's so much percussion represented in the, the nominees. It's, it feels like a really cool, special year. Like, I'm not, I think I would have been flabbergasted 10 years ago to see, like, a full-length album of Andy Akio's percussion music nominated. Like, that's in itself is freaking amazing. <laughs> and then there's like a mixed instrumentation thing with Clarice and Sergio that we're doing and, you know, in, in different categories, there's like amazing, um, amazing composers who have, who have really pushed boundaries that have written for us or written for some of our friends. And uh, just, it's, it's cool to see so much percussion uh, represented this year. It really is. It really is. And and best of luck and have all the fun. And if you need a bigger bag so you could send some to us, we'll we'll ship you. We'll ship you some. Um, awesome. So before we wrap up and thank you so much for, for staying for so long. You, we're def definitely this is a double uh, episode. <laughs> double episode. Uh, <laughs> we're very, very grateful. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, there are some uh, Instagram questions that we want to ask and feel free to do these as, as quickly as you like. Um, the first question is from at uh, Lino Celias, who says, I, I assume we've already addressed this, but how do you run your organization? Are all four of you leading the group? Um, and has this changed at all over the years? You've mentioned that you have your roles and that those have evolved, but has there been anything also worthy mentioning worth of mention worth mentioning well oh, sorry second language <laughs> we're all yeah, we, uh oh go ahead dave i'm just gonna say yeah the four of us um have lead administrative roles in the group and we always have and the exact things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis can shift a little bit but um our main roles have stayed the same for yeah almost 10 years or more the main, the main shifts that happen for us at this point are um, when we hire uh, new people, we, um, you know, when we can, we offload some responsibilities to them. More often than not, it just creates new opportunities. And so there's more work that gets done. Yeah, and their roles have grown too as they've like taken on more and more responsibility and new demands and everything. That person can check out our, as Dave mentioned, uh, TCP FAQ series on YouTube. And if you've liked this podcast, please subscribe to us on YouTube because uh, we're putting out new music, but also new behind the scenes stuff all the time. Yeah, we'll include all of that in the show notes so people will be able to find you uh, everywhere. Um, and then a little philosophical question from at Acorn Museum. Why do you play? It's a crazy uh, question and we could talk, we could be very verbose about this. Um, I think, uh, I don't even know if this is an answer, but I do know that like uh, music, I always, I've known for a long time that music was going to be my life's career. You know, um, I, if you had told me 20 years ago that I was going to be playing in a full-time percussion ensemble as my career, I'd be like, what? <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't have believed you. Not because I don't like it, but because, uh, you know, that, that just, I didn't even think that was an, an option, but, um, you know, uh, I think if I wasn't playing in a percussion ensemble, I'd be doing something else musically. Uh, and that's all I can say. Yeah. I think like music, the experience of playing and listening to music, um, or, or experiencing any art, I think, but like, it's a very intense visceral, um, 
time-based experience, temporal experience when, when it's music. Um, it's like, it is the moment of like what I think we're all seeking <laughs> in life. Like it's, there's no, it's not like a means to another end. You know, like so many things we do in life are so that we can have blah, 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 blah. And then, but like the experience of playing music, the experience of hearing music or experiencing other art in that moment is like what it's the joy. It is the, the joy, I guess. There you go. That's it. That's, that was really wonderful. Yeah. It's not a transactional thing. It really is just the love of it. Um, okay, and the most uh, serious question of all, which again, I've mentioned a little bit before, but I don't know how serious this person is, so we always pay respect to all of our listeners. This is at, and I'm sorry for butchering this, I don't know, Bill Fouilly, for example, it sounds a little bit French to me. It's not, I just don't know how to read uh, your Instagram handle, uh, dear person, but um, who is the TCP barber and who does the costuming because you boys are always too fresh? So is there some conversation to be had about your visual identity then? If 20-year-old me could hear that question, he would not, <laughs> but never possibly believe. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I still believe, but we, for, our, uh, for, for all of the, the photo shoots we've done in, in recent years, um, and also to sort of like find great clothes for us to wear in concert, we've, we've worked with a stylist um, that we've been connected to through a really amazing photographer that we've worked with, um, and that has helped to sort of steer our look, either like, you know, here's some specific clothes that we can try based on what you all seem to be into, um, and then also sort of maybe just like setting some sort of guidelines for like, cool, here's like generally what we're going for when we're, when we're playing concerts, but I think... Um, you know, I think I think we've wound up in a pretty good place given uh, you know where we started, <laughs> what we started with, what we're working with. We needed help, so we, we yeah. got help. <laughs> None of us are very fashionable people, but we all have strong opinions. Uh, <laughs> so we've 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 learned over the years to have somebody who is very very fashionable give us advice. Um, yeah. Smart, smart. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Really. Uh, all of you, it's been such a pleasure to to chat with you and to learn more about how everything goes on the inside of TCP. And it's really been great. And we wish you the best of luck with the new releases, with the Grammys. Have fun there with our sandbox buddies as well. Just we all wish we could be there, but we're all there with you in spirit. Um, and we can't wait to hear more of your music come out. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for the great conversation. Thanks for having us. For having us. Of course, of course. We're so happy to have you. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will catch you on episode 322.